Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew... Andrew and Philip, in turn, followed, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome to you all. Uh, Do please keep your Bibles open. We're going to look at that Bible passage, or at least half of it uh, this week and half of it next week. And uh, I'm going to pray that God would speak to us through his word as we look at it together. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've, we've said already with our lips in that creed that uh, we belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to ourselves, but to the faithful Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we'd understand more of what that means uh, from your word today, that we may be indeed those who, body and soul, give our whole selves to the Lord Jesus in service of him. And we ask it in his name. Amen. 
You might find it helpful to um, look on the back of the order of service. Uh, there's an outline of uh, these next few moments there if you like that sort of thing. If you'd been a, a Christian uh, in the, uh, Christian student in the 1960s, you'd have been almost certainly to have been encouraged to read this book. It was a recommended reading. In fact, some of you will have been students uh, in, the, in the 60s, and you might remember it, Sacrificed by, by Howard Guinness. In it, um, Guinness persuades his readers that the Christian life is a life of sacrifice, as, of course, the title suggests. He says, there is no other way of living the Christian life but to sacrifice our lives, every aspect of our lives, in the service of the Lord Jesus. And he ends the book with, with this challenge. These are the very last words. They're going to come, on, come up on the screen now. Where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? Where are those who lose their lives for Christ's sake, flinging them away for love of him? Where are those who live dangerously and be reckless in his service? Where are his lovers, those who love him and the souls of men more than their own reputations or comfort or very life? Where are the men who say no to self and take up Christ's cross to bear it after him, who are willing to be nailed to it in college or office, home or mission field, who are willing, if need be, to bleed, to suffer and to die on it? Where are the men of vision today? Where are the men of enduring vision? Where are the men who've seen the king in his beauty, by whom from henceforth all else is counted but refuse, that they may win Christ? Where are the adventurers, the explorers, the pioneers for God, who count one human soul of far greater value than the rise or fall of an empire? Where are the men of glory in God-sent loneliness, difficulties, persecutions, misunderstandings, discipline, sacrifice, death? Where are the men who are willing to pay the price of vision? Where are the men of prayer? Where are the men who, like the psalmist of old, count God's word of more importance to them than their daily food? Where are the men who, like Moses, commune with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend and unmistakably bears with them the fragrance of the meeting through the day? Where are God's men in this day of God's power? The last words of Howard Guinness, in Howard Guinness's book, Sacrifice. Now this evening, as we, look at, as we look at John chapter 12, we'll see that Howard Guinness calls for Christians who are ready to sacrifice their lives. Um, but that is not Howard Guinness's view, but the call of Jesus himself. Here in these verses, Jesus challenges every Christian to lay down their lives for him, to be prepared to die for him. And here's the thing tonight. Jesus says, unless we will sacrifice our lives for him, we will never experience a great harvest of people coming to him. Now that's what we're going to see, but before we do, it leaves me asking, is this why the church in this land isn't growing at a great rate? Now there's all sorts of reasons why the church isn't growing at a great rate. Sometimes it's simply because the church isn't proclaiming the gospel. But even those churches that are proclaiming the gospel are not growing at a, at a, at a, at a phenomenal rate. See, as I look around the, the Church of England today, and uh, probably wider afield, but that's the church we're involved, so I'll keep it to that. Sacrifice is not something that defines us. Of course, there are, there are examples of fully committed individuals in the church. There are people in this church family who are living really sacrificial lives, significantly life-changing, financially challenging, socially demanding, lifestyle-affecting sacrifice. But I wouldn't say it's something that defines us as a church in this nation, would you? 
Now, Jesus says here in John chapter 12 that unless we live a sacrificial life, we will not see the sort of harvest that we long for. Well, without further ado, uh, look with me at uh, John chapter 12 and verses 20 to 22. And the first point on our outline, uh, we want to see Jesus' glory. See, in verses 20 to 22, some Greeks, a a bunch of Greeks, want to see Jesus. And uh, it's pretty obvious why. They wanted to see him because they'd heard about the death-defying miracle that Jesus had pulled off in raising Lazarus from the grave. That's everything that's been going on in these uh, earlier chapters. It was the talk of the town. Look back to verse 17. Uh, Just uh, flip over the page if you've got a church Bible. See verse 17. Now the crowd that was with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. See those verses? Um, Some had witnessed that astonishing moment when Lazarus staggered out of the grave, hands and feet still wrapped in grave clothes. And those who saw it, those who witnessed it with their own eyes, told everyone about it. Well, of course they would. They'd never seen anything like it. And then everybody who heard wanted to see Jesus. I want to see this man who can do this miracle. And then verse 19, that really got up the Pharisees' noses because it seems to them as if, verse 19, the whole world was chasing after Jesus. And then the very next verse, our first verse this evening, tells us that that expression by the Pharisees wasn't just an exaggerated turn of phrase. See, the whole world has gone after him, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks who went after Jesus. Greeks, Gentiles, wanted to see Jesus as well as Jewish people. The Pharisees were right. It wasn't just the Jews, but people from other nations wanted to meet a man who could perform a death-defying miracle like raising a dead guy from the grave. Ah, so you see, we begin to see why, the, um, why these Greeks turned up. They wanted to see a glorious act of God. Well, they're not alone, are they? Down through the years, I've met people, maybe you have as well, who've said to me that if they saw a miracle, it would convince them that Jesus was worth following. They're not happy with the the eyewitness accounts of the miracles Jesus performed. They want to see a miracle themselves. These Greeks did. They'd heard about it, but no, no, I want to see it. I'm going to Jesus to find out for myself. And in order to get to Jesus, they approached Philip. Philip, verse 21, we're told, was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Now, Don Carson writes in his commentary, um, if these Greeks were from the Decapolis or from one of the territories north and east of Galilee, it would not have taken much effort to find out which of these disciples came from the nearest town. And Philip's hometown was Bethsaida in Galilee. You see the point? Philip came from the right area and had a Greek name, and so these Greeks approached Philip as one of their own. And having found their man, they said to him, verse 21, Sir, we'd like to see Jesus. Philip, any chance of you arranging a meeting with Jesus for us? Seems that request was way above Philip's pay grade. And so he went and found Andrew, verse 22. And then the two of them reckoned the best thing was for them to approach Jesus together. And so they did. And end of verse 22, they told Jesus about the Greek guys who wanted to meet him. We want to see Jesus' glory. Second, See Jesus' glory at the cross, verses 23 to 24. 
See, it turns out the Greeks couldn't have timed it any better. They turned up at precisely the right time if they wanted to see glory, at exactly the right hour. See verse 23? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, is what Jesus said. We want to see glory? Well, yet the hour has come. You want to see Jesus do something glorious? Now's the time. But here's the thing. What the Greeks meant by something glorious and what Jesus meant were two quite different things. The hour, as many of you will know, the hour in John's gospel is the hour of Jesus' death, the moment of his crucifixion. Jesus says the hour has come for something glorious to happen. He's talking about his death. And yet as you think about his death, you can hardly imagine a time when Jesus looks less glorious than when he hangs on a cross. And yet when we understand the cross, then we know that it is the most glorious moment in the history of the universe. Now before we go any further, let's step back just one moment. In John's gospel, we can see God's glory in his miracles. John states that. You don't need to turn it up, but back in chapter 2, the first miraculous sign happens when Jesus turned water into wine, and John writes at the end of that, that occasion, he thus revealed his glory. He does a miracle. You do see God's glory in Jesus' miracles. We saw it uh, way back at the beginning of September when we looked at chapter 11, and before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he said in chapter 11, verse 4, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. I'm going to do a miracle to raise Lazarus from the dead and it will show God's glory. Well, we do see God's glory. We see the glory of Jesus in his miracles. But the place where we see the glory of God supremely is at the cross. Now for sure, after the cross, Jesus was raised from the dead, conquering death, never to die again. That's glorious. 40 days later, he ascended to the sit at the right hand of the Father in glory. But on the cross is where we see the incomparable glory of God. In this um, excellent little evangelistic book, Capturing God, Rico Tice writes, imagine being offered one photo that captured the essence of God. What would you expect to see? And then he answers the question. The picture that best captures who God is is a picture of a man hanging on a most brutal instrument of torture and execution that mankind has ever seen. Uh, Let me explain like this. At the cross we see God dying for us. God, the one who, who loves us by giving us a wonderful environment to live in and yet we strut around this beautiful planet abusing it, trashing the planet, caring very little for the people that he's lovingly created, seeing 39 migrants as dispensable items that will make us some easy money. We've downtrodden and marginalised and ignored the poor, uh, continued to make ourselves fatter and fatter while others starve to death. At the cross we see God, the one who loves us so lavishly, yet we throw his love back in his face. And yet at the cross we see God, even though we treat him so appallingly, we see God go to such extraordinary lengths to forgive us. At the cross we see God the Father sending his son, the one and only beloved son, to die. And to die the most agonizing death. Father and son experiencing separation for the first time in the whole of eternity. The son abandoned as the father turns his face away. 
And he did all that for sinful, rebellious, proud human beings. What love. Nowhere else do we see the love of God that gloriously. Nowhere else do we see how glorious God is down at the cross. So the Greeks, the Greeks wanted to see Jesus do something glorious. They were thinking miracle. Jesus says your timing could not be better because Jesus was about to go to the cross, verse 23. The hour has come. But had the Greeks hung around, what they would have seen on the cross, glorious as it was, was not what they expected to see or frankly wanted to see. They wanted to see and witness a spectacular death-defying glory. But again, here's the thing. If they'd stuck around and followed Jesus to his death on the cross... And if they had the spiritual eyes to see it, that's exactly what they would have seen on the cross, death-defying glory. Look at verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. I think I've told you before, I have a little vegetable patch in our back garden. Every year I love sowing seeds and then watching them grow. I am no Monty Don, I'm not very good at it. I don't know much about gardening, but I don't have to to get this. Even I know that if I leave the seeds safe and warm in the packet, they will remain single seeds. But if I give them a burial, if I dig a hole dig a hole in the earth and then drop the individual seeds in the cold, in the cold, wet soil, and then cover them over like a burial. If they die like that, then in time they grow and produce many seeds. It's a law of nature. Unless they die, they stay in the packet, they will not produce any more seeds. And Jesus says here, that's a spiritual law too. Unless he dies, he won't produce many seeds, a crop of saved souls. Now here's the point. The Greeks wanted to see another glorious, life-giving Lazarus miracle. Jesus says at the cross, you'll see something more glorious. In Lazarus, one man was raised to life in order to live another 20, 30, 40 years before he had to face death again. Through the cross... Millions of people would be raised to new life, never to die again for all eternity. So if the Greek contingent followed Jesus to the cross, they would see the most glorious, death-defying, life-giving moment ever. They would have seen the most astonishing miracle. One agonizing death that would bring millions to everlasting life. Well, all very well. But then... Jesus challenges anyone who wants to follow him to go the same way as him. First point, we want to see Jesus' glory. Secondly, we see Jesus' glory at the cross. Third, follow Jesus for glory. Verses 24 to 26. Look with me again at verse 24. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. In the first instance, Jesus is explaining his own death. Jesus shows us that his one death will produce many seeds or, or a great harvest, however you want to read it. But he's not just talking about his own death. That pattern of sacrifice, of him dying to bring life, is not only true for him, but it's a spiritual law that is true for us too. 
We too must sacrifice ourselves if there is to be a great harvest. And why do I, why do I say that? Because that is what Jesus teaches next. First he says that we're, if we're going to sacrifice our lives, we have to hate this life. Look at verse 25. The man who, who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, you might not understand that verse at the moment, but do notice in the first instance that it is binary. If you love this life, you'll lose your life. But if you lose your life, you'll keep it for eternity. Those are the only two options. There's no other option. It's binary. There is then only one way to keep my life for eternity, and that is, verse 25, to hate this life. Now, that is strange language, isn't it? And I guess some of us may have balked at the idea of hating this life. So understand that this is the language of deliberate, dramatic exaggeration. This doesn't mean that Christians need to be negative about this life. It's about what we value. Compared to Jesus in eternal life, I'm to hate this life. He's saying this, if I so love this life that I want to hold on to it and I can't let go of it, I will never live sacrificially for Jesus. Now, this is a huge challenge to me, uh, precisely because I do love my life in this world. Just yesterday, I loved watching the rugby in the morning and then going round to a, a friend's house to watch the football in the afternoon. Oh, it was a rainy day. I, was, I, was, I could even sort of justify it. You know, it's raining. I might as well sit in front of the telly. And then playing a board game in the evening. What a great day. And I love living in Sheffield and I love being within sight of the rolling hills of the Peak District. And I love living 10 metres away from a tennis club which boasts the last grass courts in Sheffield. And when the sun is shining and I'm on the tennis courts and it feels as if everything's well in the world. I love my life in this world. And you may feel the same about all manner of parts of your life as well. But here's the thing. If we so love this life, we will be loath to do anything to put all of this in jeopardy. So, at work, when you have the chance to speak out for Jesus, you will be hesitant or reluctant to do so if it means that the promotion might be at stake. Or worse, if you think you might lose your job. Why? Because it is your job that finances all the delights of this life. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Unless I hate this life, unless I'm willing to sacrifice this life and be rejected, I will never speak out for Jesus. I'll remain like a, a seed safely tucked away in the packet and no more seeds will be produced. Unless, verse 25, I come to hate my life in this world, I won't risk telling my mates about Jesus. When we so love the life we've created here for ourselves, we're not prepared to give it up and we become impotent. Is it any wonder that the church in this land isn't seeing the glorious work of God of many coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ when we won't lay down our lives for him? Which is precisely what Jesus says we must do in the next verse, verse 26. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also must be. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, in this context, he's about to go to the cross. See the point? Following Jesus means being ready to die. 
It means living a sacrificial life for him. And look, what is the only, that is the only way to live the Christian life. Verse 26, whoever, whoever serves me must follow me. This isn't just for the really keen Christian. It's, for, it's the normal Christian life. And it's the only way to see glory, which is where we started. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor, will glorify the one who serves me. As I serve Jesus by following him on the road of sacrifice, then I'll be honored by the Father. Honor and glory is always via sacrifice. There's no shortcut, no direct route to glory. There wasn't for Jesus and there won't be for us. See, the Greeks wanted to see something glorious. They wanted to see a miracle. And Jesus pointed to the cross. If we want to see God's glory, we want to see the church in this land growing so that churches are bursting at the seams and that's not an unusual experience but the norm. If we want to see more and more churches planted so that everyone can hear the gospel, if you want to see university students coming to Christ, not in their ones and twos, which is brilliant, but in their hundreds, which is even better, and hundreds of international students being converted and then returning to their home countries to proclaim Christ all over the world. If we want to see God do remarkable and glorious things, to see England evangelized and people converted and existing churches growing and new churches planted and godly leaders trained and society transformed, if we want to see the glorious things of God, it comes through sacrifice. By us hating this life, by which Jesus means I'm ready to sacrifice this life because I've got something better to come. By us being ready to follow Jesus to the cross. At a conference I was at last month, I heard Archbishop Ben Kwashi, who's an archbishop in northern Nigeria, speak of the extraordinary growth of the church in northern Nigeria. There are hundreds of new churches every year in northern Nigeria, popping up all over the place. They are needing to train hundreds of new church leaders to keep up with all these churches that are growing. And it is no surprise that that is happening despite significant opposition from Islamists because the Christians are ready to sacrifice sometimes their very lives for Jesus. Some of them actually dying for Jesus because they so believe in him. They hate this world enough to give it up. They love Jesus more. And there's an explosion of people becoming Christians. It's exactly what we read here. When a seed dies, it grows up and many more seeds are produced. If we would live that way, we might well see this nation transformed as that nation, Nigeria, is being transformed. I have here a a book about a project in this country that tells story after story of people who have moved from respectable middle-class areas to live in some of the toughest council estates in the country. It tells of stories uh, of people who've made considerable sacrifices for the gospel, and as a result, churches are growing in tough areas. Uh, We've prayed for one of the church plants that we planted uh, 10 years ago. I think of the churches that we have planted in the last few years and the people have moved, some of them at considerable cost to themselves. Those churches now growing. 
Last week, our curate, uh, Chris Tufnell, announced our plans to graft into Utterbridge Parish Church. Uh, and I've been so encouraged by the response, not just of last week, but before. I can tell you of people who are very settled and established in Forward, who are planning to sell their houses. People you might expect to settle down into retirement, being prepared to go to such lengths. Those kinds of sacrifices will see the church grow. Last Sunday, after the Sunday evening service, I was speaking to some students. Some of them came along to an, evening, uh, 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 an event that we had after the evening service. It was all about making the most of the rest of your life. And I was so encouraged to talk to some afterwards who are already, even in their first year, planning to give up career paths where they could earn big money to become church workers. I know people who are here, here, in this congregation, standing up for Jesus, even though it is costing them promotion and maybe their job. But they're not prepared to compromise. And as they make those stands for Jesus, it's attracting others to Jesus. And you see, as we give up time to serve the church or to get to know unbelievers, and as we sacrificially give money to support gospel ministry, and as we sacrifice late nights out with our mates in order to get up early to wrestle in prayer, then we'll see God do glorious things. But I think we've got to do this collectively. There are people doing it. There are individuals doing it. There are groups of people doing it. But can you imagine what impact it has when a whole church does it? And when a whole church in a whole region does it, not just forward, but all the region? If we won't sacrifice, we won't see glory because there's no route to glory that bypasses the way of the cross. The seed has to die for many seeds to be produced. We want to see Jesus' glory. Secondly, Jesus' glory at the cross. Third, follow Jesus to glory. And fourth, wanting the Father's glory. Uh, verses 27 and 28. Look, as we begin to draw to a close, we, we, all, we all know this is not easy. That is why it's sacrifice. And if, like me, you're tempted to avoid going to the, the way of sacrifice, and I really don't want to go that way most of the time, Well, if that's how you feel, then you and I are in good company because look what Jesus said, verse 27. Now my heart is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus himself was tempted to bypass suffering. Well, if he was tempted to, you can be sure that we're going to be as well. How do we overcome it? Well, we need to pray as Jesus did, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. That's how we'll be ready and willing to sacrifice, by having a greater and greater desire for God's glory. And so in the words of uh, Howard Guinness again, where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? Where are those who lose their lives for Christ's sake, flinging them away for love of him? Where are those who live dangerously and be reckless in his service? Where are his lovers, those who love him and the souls of men more than their own reputations or comfort or very life? Where are the men who say no to self, who take up Christ's cross to bear it after him, who are willing to be nailed to it in college or office, home or mission field, who are willing, if need be, to bleed, to suffer and to die on it? Where are the men of vision today? Where are the men of enduring vision? Where are the men who've seen the king in his beauty by whom from henceforth 
all else is counted but refuse that they may win Christ. Where are the adventurers, the explorers, the pioneers for God who count one human soul of greater value than the rise or fall of an empire? Where are the men of glory and God-sent loneliness, difficulties, persecutions, misunderstandings, discipline, sacrifice, death? Where are the men who are willing to pay the price of vision? Where are the men of prayer? Where are the men who, like the psalmist of old, count God's word of more importance to them than their daily food? Where are the men who, like Moses, commune with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend and unmistakably bear with them the fragrance of the meeting through the day? Where are God's men in this day of God's power? The answer is, we're here. But will we sacrifice? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your um, remarkable love for us shown to us in the Lord Jesus at the cross. And we pray that we would be um, overwhelmed by that love, uh, thrilled by the truth of the gospel, that our hearts would be grabbed again afresh and that we'd be ready to go wherever and do whatever you ask of us. Help us to do it collectively, together, not just a few of us. May we spur each other on and may we be so ready to lay down our lives for you, uh, to be like a seed buried in the ground, ready to die for you, uh, that the result would be a great harvest for your praise and glory.